Applications crash, and engineers need to be able to quickly find the root cause of a crash. Applications have become distributed, and debugging workflows have changed. Developers need better tools to identify and troubleshoot the problems with their apps. Ben Curtis joins us today to discuss HoneyBadger, an exception and monitoring tool for web applications. Ben and I discuss how software tools can be used to detect problems faster and improve the debugging workflow. Before we get to that episode, I want to mention a few things. Software Weekly is a newsletter that we put out every Sunday evening to condense what happened in the world of software over the previous week. You can sign up for Software Weekly, and you can also join our Slack community at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Also, Software Engineering Daily is looking for sponsors. If you are interested in advertising on the show, send me a message at softwareengineeringdaily at gmail.com. Ben Curtis is the co-founder of HoneyBadger, an exception and monitoring tool for web applications. Ben, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Developers need to know when their applications are crashing. And if a user has a bad experience with a web app because the app crashes, that user probably won't send an email to the developer to describe the bad experience. So... How does a developer typically find out about an application crash? Oh, I think a developer, uh, like you said, typically doesn't get an email when someone hits a hits a problem. But uh, when about ten or twenty or thirty people hit that problem, then they might get an email. So uh, <laughs> maybe a few days later, they'll get a bunch of emails saying, "Hey, why is this still broken?" Um, so I think that's usually how developers find out about problems, or or when their boss calls up and says, "Hey, um, something on the site's not working." And uh, then it's a mad dash trying to find out what's going on. What are the most typical types of of web application crashes that occur today? Um, I think a lot of times it's it's something that's gone on behind the scenes that's broken. So you know, a lot of applications these days depend on APIs, and of course, just about every application depends on a database. And so usually there's something going on and somewhere behind the scenes that. Uh, the developer's database has gone away, or the API is not responding properly, and uh, they just uh, a lot of developers uh, forget that they need to handle the API is going away in a graceful way, and so all of a sudden the entire app blows up because they can't talk to Twilio, for example. You work on HoneyBadger.io. What is HoneyBadger? So HoneyBadger is a service that application developers can use to monitor their applications to know when an exception happens in their application and then get notified either via email or via Slack channel uh, so that they can keep on top of errors that are happening in their applications. Uh, We aggregate those errors so you might have an error happening on your site uh, and then you have 500 people hitting that same error and it happens, you know, a number of times and all of a sudden your inbox is full of all these messages if you happen to be emailing yourself when you get these errors. But what HoneyBadger does is instead of notifying you every time an error happens, it aggregates these errors and groups them together so that if you get 500 people hitting the same error, you're only going to get one email or, or one message in your Slack channel so that you can go and manage that and then see what's happening. This type of application monitoring and exception notification, how does it affect how software development teams operate around uh, exceptions and problems that occur on the user side? 
Well, the, the number one benefit that we see from using Honey Badger, because, well, we use Honey Badger ourselves to monitor our own application, is that you can be super responsive to your customers. Uh, if a customer hits a problem in our app, like let's say that the search engine dies and all of a sudden there are search errors happening, uh, I can know within seconds that a user has encountered that error. I can go and see what has happened. I can go and fix that error and deploy the fix. And then I can contact that user and say, hey, I saw that you encountered an error on our site about five minutes ago. Sorry about that. This was the problem, and now it's been fixed. Um, I do that on a regular basis, and I, customers love that. Uh, people love being able to get a response from the developers directly uh, without having to have sent that email. And, and uh, you know, service is so poor in some areas of, you know, like if dealing with an airline, right, if you have poor service, you know you're never going to hear back from them about anything, right? But uh, with something like Honey Badger, a developer can really respond quickly and personally every time something bad happens and let people know that you really care about them and that the problem's been fixed. And that just increases the confidence they have in you and your product. So talking about how Honey Badger detects problems and how developers can triage those problems, let's start with how Honey Badger works. So if a problem occurs, an exception occurs... An application crashes. How does Honey Badger detect that crash? So, if you have, let's say, a Ruby on Rails application that's running in production, we have a gem that you plug into your application that when an exception happens and it bubbles up the exception handling stack, we're there as a middleware to catch that error and report it via an asynchronous process to our API. And uh, it doesn't require any intervention, um, just a little API key that gets set up in your environment and add this gem to your app and you're done. Same, same thing is true for Elixir applications, Go, uh, Java, you, you name it. Um, same kind of deal where you just plug in some code into your application and then it's watching in the background for an exception to happen and then it sends that to us when it does. Modern applications are distributed and there's a web or a mobile front end, but there are lots of servers that get contacted for a typical request. So whether that server is a database or a piece of service-oriented middleware. So if if HoneyBadger is detecting a crash on one piece of software and it propagates up the stack, how does that, uh, how does that error get communicated between different services that might be uh, communicating over HTTP? So we have a fun feature in our uh, code, in our gem, and, and the other plugins for that languages that allows you to add context to an error. So let's say you have a, an e-commerce site. Let's say it's running on Spree. It's a common uh, open source e-commerce platform for Rails developers. Uh, and you know that you're going to have a user who's logged in. You can add the user's ID or the user's email address or whatever information you think is relevant uh, to the context that's always available in the background should an exception happen. And that context gets sent to us, and then we can add that to our search index. And so you can say, oh, I had this error. Uh, it happened to this user. Let me see how many times this particular user has encountered an error. And you can search on that user's email address when you send it along with the context. And we find that some developers have also used the context to connect to different parts of their application. So they may have a, a universal ID for a customer, 
whether that customer is using a mobile app or they're at their website or they're using an API that they provide. And they will include that user ID inside that context that they send to us so that they can then search throughout all the errors in the system and say, oh, this error happened on this mobile app, but this user also encountered the error while using our web app. And so they can connect the different pieces that way, or they can connect like an order ID or a request ID that's tracked all the way through their system and uh, store that with us and then search on it later. Okay, so I understand the product offering. Um, what I find interesting about this type of product is that in order to be effective, you have to integrate with all of these different languages. So you mentioned Elixir and Ruby on Rails, and you also have Java, JavaScript, Node.js integration. Give me some idea of how the integrations with these different languages work, because all of these different languages handle exceptions and threads in different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's been kind of a fun experience for us. To you know, We started just with Ruby and Ruby on Rails, because that's the environment that we're most familiar with, and so it was easy for us to get started there. But then as we had customers uh, you know, working in, a, in a various environments, we had more and more demand for the additional languages. And so we put a JavaScript client out there for client-side JavaScript, and then we went from there to Node and, uh, and so on and so forth. And what we've done, in some cases, we've written it ourselves, um, the Ruby on Rails, the JavaScript, the Node. And in some cases, we've brought in additional resources, uh, like, for example, for Elixir and for Go. And in some cases, we've also had people who just contribute uh, because they want to write their own. They, they like Go happened that way. We had someone who just needed to have support in his own language and we didn't have it yet. And so he looked at our uh, API spec and just wrote it to that. So we're not masters in all these languages, but um, we've, we've definitely learned a lot about them. Uh, we definitely know a lot more about Elixir and about Java than we used to when we started this project. Um, but our, our, users, our customers, definitely help us in that respect based on what they want. They, they lend their expertise to us, and we really appreciate that. So from working at Honey Badger, it sounds like you would get an interesting uh, perspective on how these different languages um, handle crashes. Because I can imagine you looking at this dashboard of like, the number of errors that you've tracked on Elixir applications versus the number of errors you've seen on Node applications versus the number of errors on Java applications. And perhaps that raw statistic is not uh, terribly relevant, but, um, you know, maybe there's something you could tell me that would be, that would be surprising or interesting about how you have seen different frameworks, different languages handling application crashes in aggregate? I think, I think there are two interesting stories there. Um, one is JavaScript. Uh, by far, the number one source of volume is JavaScript errors. <laughs> um, I, Undefined I, I is not a function? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> And, and they are the messiest to deal with because each browser, you know, renders a stack trace differently and, and some, you know, include absolutely no useful information and some include a lot. And it's just a mess. Um, we, we've had customers, well, back in the early days, people would say, well, I want JavaScript. And so we added that and, and they said all of a sudden, oh, I'm buried in errors now. What can I do? And, <laughs> and so now we just, as a matter of course, we tell people, you know, just track it as a separate app inside Honey Badger because it's going to, you know, you don't want it clouding your other useful information. Um, so that's, that's interesting point number one. I mean, some people just turn it off after a while. They're like, you know what? That's just not useful to me. 
Um, but then interesting point number two is what the Elixir community is doing, the way that Erlang has their philosophy about dealing with errors is you let the app crash, right? And then it restarts and you're back to a known state. And uh, I think that's interesting because most languages are like, well, we want to deal with these exceptions. We want to handle everything that might come our way. And Erlang's just like, well, let it crash and we'll reset and get back to get back to normal. And uh, I think that's I think that's fun. Yeah, I actually did an interview this morning with the uh, author of Elixir, Jose, um, mm-hmm. and you know we were talking about this, you know, the the let it crash philosophy. How does you know? Perhaps you know you you don't have any knowledge on this, but I'm, I'd be very curious to know how the Elixir integration with uh, Honey Badger works. How uh, how you handle monitoring crashes on Elixir? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Well, we don't. We we do try to be a good citizen, right? We want to. We don't want to be uh, a surprise to people who put us into their Elixir application, and so. We act just like any other normal Elixir app would. If, if a crash happens, we report it, but we're not going to stop it from crashing. right? We're going to let it go through. We're going to let it, Elixir do its thing. Um, we just want to make sure that we catch that information before, it happen, before it's gone, before Elixir cleans up, so that you can actually know what happened. I mean, it's one thing to let it crash and restart and get back to normal, but it's another thing to like have no idea what happened. <laughs> and so we think it's a good idea to report that info and then let it crash and, and let Elixir you know, and Erlang clean up. So I imagine it's important to catch those crashes and send that information asynchronously from mm-hmm. uh, from from the process that needs to be cleaned up. Are there any languages in which it was difficult to write that functionality, that non-blocking functionality? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't say. Uh, I mean, JavaScript is a little different. Uh, because of the way it gets loaded and, and browsers and, and that sort of thing. And um, so that we, we had to iterate on a few times to, to really get that down. But otherwise, I think it's been fairly straightforward. Uh, it's just, you know, in every language is a little different. Um, you know, Go versus Ruby versus Elixir. But uh, it's been kind of fun just learning what those differences are. And as you've seen different customers, I mean, a, building a product that you're selling to developers is interesting because you... You see the profiles of different uh, different people who use different applications, who use different frameworks and languages. Uh, have you noticed any interesting ethnographic uh, attributes of of people who use particular languages? Well, I I love uh, having a product that I sell to developers. Developers are the best customers ever. Uh, they're very demanding, but at the same time, they're very helpful. Uh, I can't tell you how many times we've had a problem with Honey Badger, and someone emails in to let us know what they did to cause that problem, and then they also give us a suggestion on how to fix it. Like, here's some code that you can use to fix that, and uh, which is awesome. Um, well, I I don't know that I've seen specific demographics for particular languages. I mean, there's the usual you know cliches of well, the Java guys are over in enterprise land. And the, <laughs> The, the Ruby guys are over in startup land, you know, and all the, all the cool kids are using Elixir these days, you know. Um, so we definitely see some differences in teams based on the technology they're using. But uh, overall, you know, developers are developers, right? We're all in there building cool stuff and having fun and, and getting frustrated that our apps aren't perfect, you know. And uh, so I think, I think we're all more alike than we are dissimilar. Tell me how the idea for Honey Badger got started. Well, Honey Badger got started... 
when uh, Star and I were working at a startup. We were building a Rails application, and we experienced an error in our application. And we were using, at the time, the only uh, monitoring service that was available, the, the granddaddy of the space, I guess you could say. And an error happened. It got sent to the service. The service did not return us the data for that error, so we didn't really know what was going on. Like The context, the detail was missing. And so we said, hey, we reported this error to you, but the context is missing. We don't know what the details are. Can you help us out here? And they wrote back and they said, yeah, the details are missing. And we looked at each other and we're like, well, great. Well, that's what we just told you. Now can you tell us what the problem is? And uh, the solution that they had was, well, we'll put a message on there saying the details are not available. (laughs) So we're like, well, great. That just sucks. And so we felt, you know what? Developers deserve better than this. Like this product had, had kind of been idled for a while. And just wasn't getting a lot of love. And so we thought, you know what? We deserve better. Developers deserve better. Um, And so it was kind of this frustration moment that said, we got to build something better. We can do better than that. And so that's that's how we got started. And that's how we decided that our focus would be providing an awesome experience to developers, both in a great product, which we, I mean, we've we've tried very hard to do, but also in fantastic customer service. Mm. Like we are always, always responding as soon as we can to problems coming in or requests coming in like if you call us or if you email us you get one of the co-founders right you don't get the support guy or the person that has no idea what the real problem is and tells you to reboot your computer you know you get us and you know we, we might get a request for hey do you have an api endpoint to us so i can get this data out and it's like oh no but we'll take a look at that and six hours later look that api is there here you go enjoy and that's what we love about honey badgers being able to make developers lives better every day the high-touch customer service improvement uh, model of competitive differentiation, this seems like something that has risen in prominence throughout Web 2.0 and beyond. And the interesting aspect of this type of startup is it, it works really well in the early days because you do get to be on the phone with a founder, but... The interesting challenge is the scalability. So how do you plan to scale that customer service offering? So we started this in 2012. And in 2016, there's still three of us. And we're still answering those emails and still answering those phone calls. So we've got many, many customers in the past few years that have come on since then. So we scaled it so far. I don't know what the answer is for the next 10 years, uh, but what we've done so far is automate everything we can um, so that we don't have to worry about just trying to keep things up, right? Uh, So that we have plenty of time to be able to take a customer request and say, oh, you want a new endpoint? Okay, we have time, we can go build that. And I can take a half a day and I can go build something because um, I'm not distracted by all the things that I have to do just keep this, the business running. So that's what we've done so far. Automate everything we can. Uh, deal with Whenever we deal with a new problem, like we've, we've had multiple revisions of our search engine, for example. Like I think we've done it five times uh, because we get to a point where it doesn't work anymore and we have to rebuild it. And so I think uh, also dealing with problems as they arise with the solution that will scale for at least for the next few months so that we can not have to worry about it uh, again. It gives us the headspace and the free time that we need to be able to answer those emails as they come in ourselves. 
So you mentioned rebuilding a search engine five times. Can you mm-hmm. can you describe what search engine you're referring to? Are you like the search over applications bugs or tell me about that? That sounds very interesting. <laughs> Something you rebuilt five times. Sure. So we get a lot of data. Uh, you know, we deal with a lot of crash reports that come in, and we we handle you know people's spikes uh, whenever they have huge problems coming in, and so. When someone records an error, they want to know, you know, when it happened and to whom it happened and, and where it happened in the, in the app and that sort of thing. And so we index, you know, a user's email address, the the browser's user agent, uh, you know, where in the code it happened and, and all that kind of stuff. And so we have to stuff that in a search index somewhere. When we started out, um, we just put it in Postgres because that's our, our favorite technology. And so we use a full text search index and that worked great for a while until it didn't. Like, you know, it just it hit a point where it wouldn't. We queries would come back, and it would take a minute to run a, a search query. And so uh, we realized, okay, we got to do something different. And so we we used Elasticsearch, and that worked great. This was like in the 1.0 days, and that worked great again until it didn't, and and you know, it started falling over. And again, you know, we can't have a thing where we have to be continually babysitting something. And so Elasticsearch, we realized, was not going to. Uh, play nicely with our infrastructure in a way that we needed that would be hands-off. And so we went back to Postgres and we, in this case, used full text search, but we then partitioned it so that, you know, we weren't searching across an entire corpus for all of our customers, but that it was partitioned by customer. Well, that worked for a while until we got some customers who were sending so much data that even that partitioning wasn't keeping up anymore. And so we looked again at what do we really want? And uh, we settled on Solar Cloud, and that's what we have today. So now all of our searches, it's in a it's in a cluster of solar servers that are you know sharded across. I don't know how many shards we have, um, and that has done really well. And of course, we also tweak what kind of data we store versus just index and that sort of thing. But that's 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 what I mean. We've like we built it five times. I think we've had like five different technology stacks that we've used to save all those search data. I love that anecdote because it's such a great example of the build versus buy uh, debate and how that's evolving. Um, it, it's so interesting because you had this very specific, um, you know, this very specific problem. You know, search, uh, you know, internal application search, uh, and you rebuilt it several times, and then it got to the point to where build was almost no longer an option and so you went to you went to buy um and you know build versus buy is like has been an on, ongoing conversation on software engineering daily and i feel like um you know with this explosion in new software products and um developments in uh you know kind of this cambrian explosion of different things that are available there are more there's there's more room for um for software vendors that offer very interesting particular cloud services like solar solar providing i believe uh they mainly do like the indexing and search in the cloud as a service um do you do you agree with what i just said and are there any other interesting examples you have of build versus buy at honey badger yeah, I think we definitely do have an embarrassment of riches these days when it comes to things that we can just take off the shelf. And it's it's an interesting uh, customer segment, though. Developers are because um, we typically value our time at $0 per hour uh, because we think, well, I can build that, right? And it's uh, definitely more interesting 
and probably cheaper than if I, you know, buy something or even get an open source thing because who knows what that code's like. That's probably junk, you know. So we have this great uh, arrogance, which is awesome. I love it. I mean, Larry Wall, you know, the virtues of a programmer are impatience, laziness, and hubris. And uh, he was totally correct. Um, yet we do have all these great options coming out. Uh, companies like LinkedIn, especially, who are, you know, just throwing out awesome tech. All And, and uh, uh, Netflix as well. And... I think these days developers have gotten better at looking at a situation saying, okay, do I really need to spend my time building that? Or can I use this thing that's out there? And, and oftentimes there is something that's really quite good enough and it's out there and it's, it works just fine. Um, you know, in our experience, like I wasn't familiar with solar. And because I, I look back and say, well, should I just use solar like three years ago? Should I just started with that and then I wouldn't have had to rebuild it three times? Well, maybe, but I didn't know solar, but I knew Postgres, right? So I used the tool that I knew. I, I, I built some, something custom that worked until I didn't. And I think when we, we get to that point where we're like, you know, I'm feeling this friction, I'm feeling this frustration of, of uh, what I have right now isn't solving my problem anymore. Maybe it solved my problem for the past six months, but it's not right now. I think it's always a good idea for developers to say, okay, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe there's something I can learn from somebody else. Maybe I do need to take a step back and go learn this new approach, this new technology. Maybe I just have to admit that I personally don't love Java. So I avoided solar largely because I don't want to run anything on the JVM. That's just my personal thing, right? But finally had to buckle down and say, you know what? I don't know everything. Uh, I'm not the smartest tool in the shed. Uh, I can learn from other people. And you know what? The solar actually works really well. And despite it being running on the JVM, uh, it's, it's an awesome solution for me. So it's, it's definitely a trade-off because uh, it's not as fun, right? To so just, oh, I use somebody else's thing and now I don't get to build it myself. Um, but I think it, it shows that if I'm willing to be a bit humble and I'm, I'm willing to allow that someone else has done a better job of solving that problem than I have, uh, then yeah, I should use that and Maybe that's a good idea. Let's save me some time. Well, I think this is this is one of these. Uh, this is a developing trend in software engineering. Uh, you know, we think about the resources that we care about as memory and um, you know processing power, but increasingly, money is becoming something that is you know you increasingly you can spend your way out of a, a problem. Uh, sure. I don't, I don't want to oversimplify that. Um, but you know, parsimony can, can really, can really hurt you. Um, Mm -hmm. of course, you know, today we saw, well, I I don't know if you read, I read in Hacker News earlier today, or this is not in Hacker News, some, I think Bloomberg or something, but an an article about, uh, Dropbox, like Dropbox moving away from AWS, which is like very interesting, like basically saying, you know, we're tired of paying the tax of AWS and we're moving to our own hardware, almost the, the reversal of what you would expect. Um, and then I think, you know, uh, a couple, what was it? A couple, couple, couple weeks ago, I think Spotify moved from their own infrastructure to uh, Google cloud. So it's, I don't know, it's, it is a, it's a very interesting development, but, um, but I like the idea that, you know, the future that is evolving seems to be one in which you can purchase access to the APIs you need, and then you can build higher level abstractions on those really nice APIs that are really well supported because you're paying for them. And, 
yes, in some sense, you're right. There is, you know, a humility involved there, but there's also a hubris because you can say, uh, I am bold enough to, you know, build my new technologies on these APIs that are uh, vendor given because I can't get APIs that are this good from anywhere else. And I'm not going to, I don't have time to build them. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think, oh, and in the case of Honey Badger, like, Having run an exception monitoring service, I can tell 95% of the people out there, you do not want to run an exception monitoring service. You know, you don't want to run it yourself. You can. There are options. They're open source. Uh, But if you get to any level of of errors in your application, you just don't want to be managing that when you're dealing with errors in your application. Uh, Now, in some cases, that's not going to apply, right? You might be super huge or you might have particular, uh, like, HIPAA requirements where you're feeling very paranoid about your data getting out. And I understand that. And that's, that's cool. Um, and, but there are so many good options where you can pay that tax. Uh, maybe it's to AWS, maybe it's to another provider that charges through the nose, but it's actually a great product. Uh, and it's worth it because you don't have to take your time to be dealing with it. Um, you know, we, we're actually at Honey Badger doing, uh, that ourselves. We, we built from the start with, uh, leased servers. So we have, a facility in Tampa where they have actual bare metal servers that we're leasing from them and that's worked out great for us. But in the past several months, we've actually been working on migrating to AWS. And you might say, well, why? I mean, if it's working and it has been working really well um, and you are, we are going to be paying more probably with AWS, why, why would you do that? Um, because in my case, I'm the guy that gets woken up in the middle of the night if things go badly. I can automate a lot of that stuff away with AWS that I can't automate away with a bare metal server at my current facility, right? If a API servers need to be spike, you know, uh, if there's a spike and I have to scale up really quickly, well, I can handle that automatically at AWS versus I can't do that quite as easily at my lease facility. So I think the real answer to this build versus buy is you have to be aware enough of what's out there and aware enough of what your capabilities are and what your preferences are to be able to sit back and say, okay, what are my real costs? And not just in money, but in time and in frustration and in sleeping well at night. And then what's best for my situation? Like maybe today the best thing for my situation is just to throw out a, a quick, simple text search on top of Postgres. Maybe today my best situation is to outsource that entire thing and, you know, and pay a lot more money. But I'll sleep better because I know there's a guy on the other end who knows that much better than I do and he's taking good care of it. Um, so I don't, you know, you can read blog posts that'll argue one way or the other, but I think what really you have to do is you have to look at your own situation and say, what's best for me, for, for my organization? And, uh, you know, just do the best you can with what you have. In between the option of having your bare metal servers in Florida and having everything on AWS, there is the hybrid cloud option. And uh, I did a show recently where the guest was talking about this. And I haven't been involved in many conversations where the merits of a hybrid cloud have been elaborated on. Have you considered a hybrid cloud approach? So we actually are in a hybrid cloud approach at the moment. So we have, for example, um, we deal with uh, Logplex uh, errors that come out of Heroku. So they have their own log uh, platform where they you can install a log drain and you can get a bunch of errors uh, or actually all the logs coming off an application that's running on their platform. Well, that's pretty high volume. And in our case, we're looking for just a particular percentage of those logs, just the errors. 
And so what we do is we actually have a, a, um, a scaling group at AWS that handles just that log drain traffic, filters through it, and then forwards on the errors to our main uh, error collecting service that's running at the facility. So we have both an auto-scaling thing that can handle the spikes of traffic that happen from Longplex, but also the main collector endpoints are, are running in our lease facility where it's, we know what that scaling looks like, and it's very much more predictable than dealing with who knows what logs coming from various Heroku applications at any given time. So we, we, we have that, and we're definitely going to continue, uh, even as we move much of our stuff to AWS, we're never going to leave the lease facility behind. Um, at, at, at the last resort, it's going to be a backup facility. Right? It's always going to be there uh, with a hot backup of everything that we have in case you know U.S. East goes away entirely and doesn't ever come back. Uh, we'll, have, we'll have servers still running in Tampa that we can, we can do something with. We've been talking about the back-end infrastructure of Honey Badger, and I want to talk a little bit more about the usage that um you know a customer is using uh give me an example of a bug that a customer found recently or you know i don't know you know you can make something up if you want but you know, there are people like DigitalOcean and ebay and some really big names that are using honey badger and i would love to hear about like how they use it and how they have diagnosed things and found interesting problems and debugged them using Honey Badger. I think uh, one interesting story is, uh, I, w- I won't name names, I don't want to embarrass people, but um, they, had, they were one of the ones that had a lot of JavaScript errors coming in. And uh, the interesting thing about their situation wasn't that they had all these unknown JavaScript errors that they couldn't figure out what they were. They had no value. They actually had really good traces on their JavaScript. The problem was uh, they couldn't figure out why it was creating so many different error notifications inside of Honey Badger. Because we have that grouping that I described at the beginning, right, where you might send us uh, 500 or 1,000 or 10,000 errors and if they're all the same error happening in basically the same place, then we're just going to send you one notification, right? And it's just going to show up as one entry on your dashboard. And then you can go through and see all the individual instances as you wish. But in this case, they had JavaScript errors that were all the same, yet they were showing up as all different. Um, each, each time a customer would hit this error, it would show up as a new error, even though it looked just like the other ones. And they, and they thought this was odd until they realized what was happening was the way their pages were loading the JavaScript, it showed up as a different URL for the user. Like maybe they went to product A and hit this error and then hit the URL product B and hit this error. It's the same error, but it was two different URLs. But they thought from their perspective, it should have been the same URL. But the way their caching system was caching the pages, it loaded that particular JavaScript so that it came up with different URLs. And so that kind of surprised them that, that their JavaScript was... It was JavaScript they had written themselves, was uh, you know showing up as different locations, even though they thought from their perspective because they were had an engine that was caching it in such a way that it came out. Uh, this one error came out in multiple places, so that was something that helped them recognize. Oh, okay, well we can see how our our asset caching system is not operating quite as we expected it. So that was kind of an interesting discovery that one of our customers had with some of their code. Uh, that was a kind of a surprise. You mentioned HIPAA compliance, and uh, that sounds like a like an interesting 
domain. Um, so have you had, do you, can you, do, are there any interesting clients you've had that have imposed certain uh, limitations or have made interesting feature requests for Honey Badger? Like HIPAA compliance certainly sounds like something that might, uh, might impose certain constraints on your application. Yes. And, and we've had some customers who have had some very specific requirements they wanted uh, from us to the, to the extent that they wanted a separate operating agreement from us uh, to service their needs. And we've, we've strenuously avoided doing that because uh, we're, we're just three of us. And you know, we went around, we, we talked to other people in our situation and, and see what they did. And, and, and basically the, the word we got back was, you know what, that's a lot of work. And uh, unless you want to dedicate you know, your entire life to that, maybe you want to do something else. <laughs> and, and so we went back to those customers and, and we explained, you know, hey, it's, it's three of us. Uh, and, we're, and we explained our security procedures. Like we're, we're doing some common sense stuff, right? We have, we only allow SSH and it's on an unknown port and it's only with keys that are, you know, granted. We don't do password authentication, you know, et cetera, et cetera. SSL everywhere. You know, the, the, the standard list of stuff that you would do if you're kind of smart, right? And uh, and then we would say, and they would say, okay, that's that's great and all, but if you don't sign this agreement, this agreement, this business associate agreement, well, then we can't do business with you. And we would say, okay, understand that, but how about you just not send us that data? And they're like, what? And we said, <laughs> so well, you can determine what data you send us, right? If you don't put someone's user email address in there, if you don't include their PII or their PHI, then no problem, no harm, no foul, right? And for some customers, that's like, oh, that works. Yes, we can do that. We will, we will implement policies in our end to make sure that we don't send that data to you. For other customers, are like, no, that's not good enough. And they, they went off and found a better solution for their, for their needs. Yeah, because I imagine like some of them would even be afraid, like, well, what if we accidentally send it? Yes. Well, yeah, totally. And uh, some, some have sufficient controls in place where they know they're not going to accidentally send it, and some do not. And so, yeah, so for some, our... Uh, you know, uh, procedures that are generally accepted and are good security practice are good enough. And for some, if there's no BA in place, sorry, you're just, you can't be a vendor. So we understand that. We're not right for every person on the planet, but we do our best. So this area of applications where Honey Badger plays in, there are many other players. Uh, there's things like Sentry and Bug Snag and some other types of applications. Uh, you mentioned you were using one when you actually had the idea for Honey Badger and you kind of had this idea like, we'll do something similar, but we're going to have better customer service. We're going to have some other better features. Tell me about what it's like to be in a highly competitive space like this and how you how you effectively differentiate yourself. Well, it's it's fun to be in such a competitive environment. Uh, you know, we've we've interacted with most, if not all, of our competitors on a personal basis, we know them, and they're great people. I mean, they're as cool as we are. Um, maybe not as handsome as we are, but they're at least as cool as we are. You know. Uh, but you know, we so yeah, we started Honey Badger basically copying someone else's product, right? We said, hey, we like that, we want that, but we want to do it a little differently, and so we did. And the the fun thing has been that that particular product they've since copied some of the things that we have done you know and that's that's cool it's all fun right and it's it's kind of neat it's like oh thanks for the compliment we appreciate that you know um and and yes sentry and and, and roll bar and bug snack um we're all very similar we do very similar things 
but I think we're enough different that we, if not at least our personality, then 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 maybe something in our pricing or I don't know or something in our features. Uh, you know, like for example, Honey Badger, we also do uptime monitoring and we do performance monitoring where we record statistics about your app. We have an we have an iOS app and an Android app, which are, some of our competitors don't do that. Uh, so I think we all have our, enough differences that you can say, oh, based on my personal preference, you know, I like great Kool-Aid versus Tropical Punch Kool-Aid. I'm going to go with the grape instead of the Tropical Punch, you know. It's all good. Like, we're all having fun. So I've talked to Moisey Oretsky, who is the DigitalOcean uh, co-founder, and, uh, you know, I talked about talked to him about, like, trying to differentiate in the cloud service provider space and like to to some uninformed outsiders it seems like this area where it's like i don't really care what compute i'm getting whether it's from azure or DigitalOcean or from uh amazon or from google it doesn't matter um but if you're on the inside or if you're a developer who is deciding what cloud service provider to get you realize that actually there is some serious uh, importances in the granularity between these different types of services. Um, I imagine it is the same for the application uptime and monitoring space. Can you give me an idea of the types of features that users are really making their decisions? Like, what are the what are the inflection points between the different services, like Honey Badger and Sentry and Bugsnag and how are your customers like? What are they like when somebody switches from something else to Honey Badger or from Honey Badger to something else? What are the things that they say like, "Yeah, I just need X." Like, what are these inflection points? Yeah, I think there definitely are those and those spots where uh, there are distinct differences. Um, one of them is is the iOS and Android applications. I think if you want that, if you want to have alerts on your Apple Watch when your application has a problem, then there's only really two places you can go to get that. Uh, and I don't know how good AirBrakes is because I haven't used it, but I know that ours is awesome. Um, but what we hear from customers who are switching, uh, a lot, sometimes it comes down to pricing. Like uh, our pricing model is different from Roll bars, which is different from Sentries, which is different from Bug Snacks, right? Because uh, like Bug Snack is per user, and and we're based on per project. Roll bar is based on the number of errors you want to track in a month, and Sentry is based on how many errors you want to track in a minute. You know, so for some people who have, let's say, lots of apps, one might be a better fit for the pricing than someone who has one or two apps, but they're high volume apps. Uh, so you definitely have to look at what is your app profile like uh, to determine, on a, on a pricing level anyway, which which makes the most sense. But others are like, you know what, the UI that you have in Honey Badger is just exactly what I need. Um, and I, I kind of relate this to when I, I used to be, uh, work, I used to work in PHP a lot, like back in 2004, um, before Rails 1.0. And so Rails was coming onto the scene and Django was coming on the scene about the same time. And I was looking at these new developments and thinking, what do I want to do? Like, because PHP is cool and all, but I'm always down for something new. And I looked at Rails and I looked at Django and um, I looked at Python and I looked at Ruby because I'm looking at Django and, and Rails. And I, I read, Kent, read Kent Beck's book on test-driven development and all those examples are in Python. So I'm like, okay, Python's pretty cool. I'm liking it. 
And I was really getting on the TDD bandwagon. I'm liking that. But then I started playing in Ruby. And for some reason, Ruby just really clicked my brain a lot better than Python did. And it wasn't the white space. That wasn't the issue. <laughs> um, um, but there was just something about the way I could express myself in Ruby that was better for me than Python was. And so I stuck with Ruby and I got on Rails and I've been doing the same thing ever since then. Uh, and it just, it just stuck with my brain. And I think there's that same experience in our different apps as well. If you look at the UIs, just on a surface level, it's the same kind of stuff. Like there's backtraces and there's, you know, things like that. But if you look at the development and the debugging experience like we do at Honey Badger, then you're going to find that the Honey Badger UI fits very well into your workflow. Because we spent a lot of time thinking, as a Rails developer, what do I want to see? And how do I want to see it? And what's the best thing that gets me to find the error as fast as possible and get back to my real life of not dealing with this error anymore? And so some people look at the different tracking systems and say, oh, well, this just feels right for me because the developers behind it have built it in a way that makes sense in my brain. So that might be kind of a touchy-feely, I don't know, kind of amorphic kind of answer to that, but uh, there are definitely those factors, and definitely the, the feel of it, the experience of it, is definitely one of those factors. And how does that fit into the marketing story? Because if, you're, if you have a... I mean, I can totally understand that from a product development standpoint where you're just like, yeah, I mean, the, the users that love us, they love us for reasons that are kind of hard to articulate. It's a touchy-feely thing. But from a marketing standpoint or customer acquisition standpoint, how does that play in? Like, how do you find the commonalities between the types of customers that you want to market to? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but but if you find the answer to that, please let me know because that would make my job a lot easier. Um, no, I... You know, we talk to obviously we talk to our customers and we ask them how how they like the product and uh, stuff. And I don't know if you if you saw this, but um, DHH had a great talk at Business of Software last I think it was last year, and he talked about the rewrite, the great rewrite. And he was talking about how uh, you know he's talking about version three. I, I think he was talking about uh, and um, version three of Basecamp. A Basecamp, right? And how there there were. What they didn't know was how many customers they were losing because they didn't like what they were seeing when they first came to the site, right? He said, of course they know how many people sign up and they can track that, but they don't know based on what they're seeing in their analytics, who's going away because we're not providing the most awesome thing now, right? Our old base camp wasn't cutting it anymore, and so we did this V3. Uh, and I think every app developer has the same problem. It's like if you have people showing up your door and they just go away, you don't know exactly why. And it's really hard to find out why. Uh, and so we talk to our customers as best we can, but I think like most businesses, we're kind of guessing. And we do our try to make our best guess. And if we find that something doesn't work and the needle doesn't go in the right direction, well, then we try and tweak that and try to backtrack. Um, but we're always trying to get in the, in, the, in the minds and hearts of our customers by talking to them and seeing what we can do better for them. And, and hopefully what we have out there resonates. And, and, and if not, hopefully someone will tell us why. <laughs> you mentioned that iOS and perhaps Android were differentiating characteristics. Is there something difficult about implementing the crash monitoring layer in iOS and Android? So actually, I was meaning from a user standpoint. Like we have an app 
a Honey Badger oh, app. Oh, okay. Yeah, that can actually receive notifications, so you can get a push alert whenever. Oh, okay. So I like yeah. I'm a DevOps guy, and I, I or girl, and I need to know what kind of what kind of application errors are aggregating, and I want to look at it on my phone. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And and actually, that's an interesting thing uh, to bring up. Like talking about the user experience and how an app feels to someone. So when we were designing this application, it's been out for about a year now. When we were building it, uh, so we had to make some decisions about the color scheme and, and things like that. And if you look at our site, it's bright orange and bright white, right? Well, I'm the ops guy, and so I'm the guy that gets woken up at 3 a.m. with PagerDuty, right? And so I'm I'm very well acquainted with the PagerDuty application because it wakes me up on a regular basis. Well, not anymore, but it used to. And I noticed that it was dark. Why is it dark? Well, because at 3 a.m., you don't want a bright white app showing up in your face to wake up your wife, right? You want it to be dark. And so as we were designing the application, I said, okay, it must be dark. Like this is my only requirement. It has to be dark, you know, and that's why. So that, that's the kind of thought we put into the kind of things we deliver. And hopefully that, that kind of thing resonates with developers who use our product. So speaking of pager duty, uh, and, you know, we could talk about Slack or HipChat or these other services that are crucial to the developer lifestyle workflow. Um, tell me about integrations with Honey Badger because uh, integrations are becoming so key to uh, how products develop over time. I mean, Slack has differentiated so much in its ability to in- to integrate with other products. Um, we've done other shows with things like Gitter, and segment these are products that that thrive off of the API economy just having you know APIs everywhere for all kinds of stuff that they smoothly integrate with and honey badger is the type of thing that you know it, your 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 application error aggregation you would want you would want the ability to say to pager duty hey whenever we aggregate 2000 errors of something please alert whoever is on call. So tell me about your, your integration process. So the integrations, I think that's definitely the, an exciting area of the application that we built. Um, Cause you're right. You definitely want to know from PagerDuty if, if you're a PagerDuty customer, Hey, if I'm seeing a bunch of errors in my application, I want to be woken up about that. Um, or, you know, for us, we use Slack uh, at Honey Badger, and being able to have stuff come into Slack from all of our systems is is just awesome. I, there's no other way to describe that. It's it's amazing. Uh, and so that was one of the things that we decided early on that we definitely wanted to focus on. We wanted to have great integrations. And so that's why we have things like GitHub and Pivotal and Asana. Like, hey, my errors probably turn into tasks, Right. And with Slack and HipChat and Campfire, because hey, I want to know right away if it happens. And with things like PagerDuty and Datadog and uh, VictorOps, because hey, I've got a bunch of other ops data coming in from other places. I want to see everything in one place, right? So I think for if, if for example, if someone is considering building something for a developer, you, you just have to assume from the outset that it's got to integrate with the, all these kinds of things, and just plan on that uh, because. We, we've become more sophisticated in the past five years. Like We have all these services. We want to use them. We expect to be able to use them. We expect our apps to be able to talk to each other. And I think it's, it's table stakes now. And it's a way you can delight your customer. right? Um, 
in Honey Badger, you can say, you can search for uh, whatever, like if, if it happens in this file or, or if the error happens, you know, 10 times in, a, in, a, in an hour, then alert me. And so we have these like very granular rules that you can apply. And that's a delight, right? Like when, when, when we see errors coming in for our, in our private instance of Honey Badger, and it's like, hey, this error has happened 10 times in the past hour. It's like, oh, I should go pay attention to that. And that came up in Slack and my alerts channel. And I know, hey, I should watch when that alerts channel is, is bold, right? So it just, yeah, and you, I, I, you got to do it. I mean, it's, it's the way it should be. It's the way we've become accustomed to. It's, it's awesomeness. It's like peanut butter and jelly. It's, you just, yeah, it's life. It's wonderful. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, let's begin to wrap, wrap up. Um, give me an idea of the future of Honey Badger and the future of this application monitoring and crash detection space. Mm, now that's, that's a very good question. Uh, I think I think we'll see. So let me back up a bit to the past. So when we first started Honey Badger, you know, there there weren't as many competitors in the space. There weren't as there wasn't as much awareness amongst developers that they should be paying such close attention, right? At, at the time, I've used Nagios. Yeah, yeah. So that yeah, so you know what I'm talking about. Um, so I think that the future for this space is more and more developers understanding that to deliver an awesome experience, it's not just an awesome product, right? It's not just awesome marketing. It's also an awesome operational experience that if you want your customer to know that you care, then you have something like Honey Badger. You have some system where you're aware of what's going on so that you know things are good or things are not good. And you care passionately about your customer's experience to the point that you don't want to be unaware that they're having a bad day with your application. You want to know, hey, that Bob just ran into this problem and I'm going to go fix it for him in five minutes and let him know because that will make him happy, right? That makes him awesome and you feel awesome for making him awesome. And I think so the future of this segment is how do we do that for developers even better than we're doing it today? Like an exception tracking service is great. Right? That's, a, that's, I think, foundational now, uh, where it wasn't maybe five years ago. But what, what can we do for that developer to make him more awesome? Is it something like code climate, and you add some static analysis so that you avoid sending problems into production at all? Or is it something that we can do to analyze your data better that says, you know what, uh, every time that Tim touches this particular file, it starts creating errors. So maybe you should keep Tim from touching this file. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know if it's, you know, what exactly the details are, but I think it's whatever gets us to the point where developers are delivering a better experience to their customers. That's where I think you'll see this segment go. As far as, you know, if, if your question is, are there going to be just three competitors in this space versus five in two years? Um, I don't know. Um, I think there's plenty of love to go around. Uh, there could be, sure. Uh, will I be interested in doing this 20 years from now? Uh, I don't know. Um, but it's an awesome space because we get to make developers' lives better. And what's better than that, right? I can help my, my fellow brothers and sisters who are in this development try with me. They can have a better life through the, the, the things that come out of my fingertips. Well, that's just, that's cool. Yeah, and you know, I I think I can relate somewhat to the type of, pleasure that you get out of that type of business because you know my you know my bread and butter is interacting with developers of all 
types and I get to to have a window into all these different types of businesses and their problems and their pain points. And it's very interesting. And I imagine that, you know, Honey Badger is kind of a, the same kind of um, perspective. You know, you, you're just aggregating errors from all these different types of businesses and you're seeing all these different types of businesses. And it's, it's an interesting place to be regardless of what product you're working on, whether it's a podcast oh. or an application monitoring service. Totally. I mean, sometimes I feel like Steve Ballmer running across the stage, you know, screaming, developers, developers, <laughs> you know. Uh, he had something right there. Like, we are an awesome tribe. And um, we, we, we got to stick together and do awesome things for each other. And, and in so doing, we find that, at least I have found, that it makes my life better. Like, I can't tell you how happy it makes me feel when someone comes to me and says, thank you for like turning around this feature request in five hours. That made my day. But that makes my day, right? Um, so I don't know. I just, I just love it. I love going to work every day because this is what I get to do. I get to make people happy and it's awesome. Great. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a good place to close. Ben, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been a really interesting conversation. Oh, thanks again for having me join you. It's been awesome.